0: Praise the Lord, church. Is God good? All the time. All right. And all the time? All All right. Love y'all, church. Uh, we've been coming to New Life for a few months now, and uh, the one thing that I can say um, best about this church that I've learned so far is you all are very intentional about greeting, loving on people, having great conversations, not being afraid to ask certain questions. Uh, And I love that. I think that's an important part of building accountability and authenticity. Um, It's not going to rub everybody the right way, but that's okay. Um, We're Christians. We should be weird like that. Um, So today I have the, uh, the privilege of talking about secret agent of change by the name of King Josiah. But before I do that, just wanted to acknowledge my beautiful wife, Lisa. Um, And uh, she, I got here at nine, and she was doing all the business with getting the kid out the house and everything. So I always just want to acknowledge her for standing in the gap. I'm called to assignment. I want to read for you a couple verses out of Second Kings chapter twenty-two. If you can find it in your copy of God's Word, I don't hear too many flipping of pages. So I'm assuming we have a lot of electronics going on. Okay, praise Him. Second Kings chapter twenty-two. We want to read verses nineteen through the third verse of the next chapter it says because your heart was tender and you humbled your because your heart was tender you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants that they would become a desolation and a curse and you tore your clothes and wept before me I also have heard you surely therefore I will gather you to your fathers And you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. Now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah, and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets and all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. Let's pray. Dear God, we're grateful that you have allowed us to descend to this place. Um, to descend into this text, Father God, to find out a bit more about what it is you want us to do in this thing called life. And we pray, God, that as we continue on the mission that we are partnering with you on, Father God, and redeeming this world, Father God, that you would give us additional insight into what it means to have a renewed and renovated heart, Father God. We pray, Lord, that we would see from King Josiah today, Father God, that heart transformation is greater than behavior modification. We pray all these things in your mighty and matchless name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, there's a 20th century poet and novelist from South Philly. His name is B.G. Neblet. Uh, B.G. Neblet wrote this beautiful quote, you may have heard it, that we are the sum total of our experiences. Those experiences, be they positive or negative, make us the person we are at any given point in our lives. And like a flowing river, those same experiences and those yet to come continue to influence and reshape the person we are and the person we become. None of us are the same as we were yesterday, nor will we be tomorrow. It's a simple enough idea from uh, that quote, uh, that uh, the, the idea he's trying to communicate that the way that I am, who am I, why am I here, where am I going, my, my existential nature can be drawn to this one conclusion that I simply have to take inventory and assess how the total of my experiences have shaped me and molded me. That's how I know why I am the way that I am. And while the substance of that quote is indeed deep and profound, I can't help but wonder what about people who share similar experiences but go in totally divergent paths. See, I grew up watching the the third iteration of the Mickey Mouse Club. It was called the new Mickey Mouse Club. Uh, These brought to you kids who would later become pop culture icons. Uh, You might know some of these names. Uh, uh, Justin Timberlake, Britney Spears, Jessica Simpson, Christina Aguilera, Rossling, Ryan Gosling, to name a few. And when I think about child actors and how they became adult actors, I can't help but observe that many have been successful in this turn and many have failed. That for every Leonardo DiCaprio, there's a Macaulay Culkin. That for every Drew Barrymore, there's a Lindsay Lohan. That is there something beyond experiences, beyond environmental conditioning? Is there something beyond the sum total of our experiences, something within our self-determinative control that will factor into my success in life? I would submit to you today that it's our affection our desires, the allegiance of our hearts. As you read and as you trek through the terrain of Scripture, one of the central conflicts that the witness of Scripture calls us to is to understand where is the allegiance of your heart? You see, the heart... Uh, in the Old Testament, the Bible uh, is, 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 uh, is describing it not necessarily as an organ, not necessarily as the seat of our emotions, but it is drawing attention to the heart as the, the spirits of a person, as the essence of a person. So I ask you today, to, uh, to, to what entity have you given the allegiance of your essence? Yeah. Who you are. Who have you given the allegiance of who you are to? Your life experiences are not the source of your self-determination, but the stage upon which your allegiances, your affections, and your desires are the major player. See, life experiences deal with what happened to you and what's going on around you, but your affections and desires, your allegiances of your heart, going on inside of you and God is much more concerned about inward transformation inward renewal than behavior modification you see God is a lot less concerned with the negative experience in your life that, than you are a lot of us will use our negative experiences as a pedigree for and a marker for our future that we will draw a plumb line from what all that we have experienced in our life and we will project that forward. But guess what? God is not so much concerned about how experiences shape how you will behave that he is concerned about the disposition of your heart. So if you leave here with anything today, leave here with this one sentiment that heart transformation is be- is greater than behavior modification. That covenant with not based on our commitment to do for God. It's established in your belief of what God has done for us. So King Josiah here is our pop culture icon in this story. He's uh, uh, the star of the narrative that's much more grandiose than the new Mickey Mouse Club, but he experiences fame in much the same way from a young age. He's the youngest king in the history of either the united or divided kingdom of Israel. Josiah, as an eight-year-old, is fighting against family history. See, it's because of Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, that God has determined that he would wipe out the kingdom of Judah. And Manasseh, according to 2 Kings 21, was 12 years old when he became king. And he ruled 55 long years, full of idolatry. Full of evil, his son and Josiah's father Ammon does nothing to avert the wrath of God. Continuing Manasseh's idolatrous practices, he was such a disastrous king that people conspired against him and killed him within two years of his ascent to the throne. So, what can we expect of this child king? This. Eight-year-old boy king who's fighting against two generations of idolatry and evil. What can we expect of this young boy? His father and his father's father had inbred and interwoven a culture of idolatry into the very fabric of the nation's life. What can an eight-year-old do about that? The thing about secret agents of change is not so much that they don't have positions of power, it's just that the, the it's, there's an element of otherness to them. That they, it's perhaps traditionally marginalized people, and what they are in a position to do is to not let their otherness affect what they can do. So to understand our, our text a, a little bit today, you must understand the the, the the full breadth and the full history of what King Josiah is fighting against, and it's the it's the history of this nation of Israel. If there's a sentiment that I could submit to you that that might uh, that that's emblematic of who this people is and and what they do, it's broken promises. The nation of Israel can be characterized by. Being an idol-making and covenant-breaking people. What's idolatry? Some of you, I'm sure, are very familiar with the term. Others may not. I got this from Christopher Wright's book, The Mission of God. He puts idolatry like this, that idolatry dethrones God and enthrones creation. Idolatry is the attempt to limit, reduce, and control God. By refusing his authority, constraining or manipulating his power to act, having him available to serve our interest. At the same time, paradoxically, idolatry exalts things within the created order. Creation is then credited with the potency, the power that belongs only to God. It is sacralized worshipped. God then becomes a utilitarian object to be used for our use. And blessing and creation becomes the object of our affection and desire. Idol worship. Idol worship is this nation's problem from the very beginning. And it's amazing. At the top of the Ten Commandments, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. They struggle getting that one. The first commandment that instructs his people how they should be bound to him. Idol worship becomes sanctioned by the state in Israel. Solomon, towards the end of his reign, has married so many different wives and he's trying to manage all the different ones. And you know what? I think he says, you know what? Y'all just go do what y'all do. And he allows his wives to build temples and shrines and high places to their foreign gods. The results were devastating. The kingdom splits right after Solomon's reign between northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Northern kingdom begins to hold fast to idolatry almost immediately. Judah, the southern kingdom, then becomes more symbolic of the righteous kingdom. But even Judah must suffer the wrath of God because of Josiah's grandfather. Manasseh Manasseh does not follow after his father, Hezekiah, one of the other most righteous kings of Judah. It said this of of Manasseh in chapter 21. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done these things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord. The God of Israel, behold, I am bringing Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish wiping it and turning it upside down, and I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a soil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger. Since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day, moreover Manasseh shed very much innocent blood so he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Hoarders. The hoarders of idols. Can we show the... My
1: name is Monty. I live in a very upscale neighborhood and I'm keeping an absolute humongous secret. My mom's house is embarrassing, it's sad, it's depressing. I would consider myself maybe a high-end, upscale, couture tie porter.
0: Monty, a high school math teacher, has been coming home to growing piles of clutter for the past 10 years.
1: This is my entryway. I'm using it as a closet. As you can see, I have shoes. I have lots of shoes. I love shoes. I don't even know how many pairs of shoes I have, but I've got one, two, three, four, five, six. As you can see, they still have tags on them. I have a shopping addiction. I um, am a shopaholic. 62, 63, 64. I shop and shop and shop, and then I work some more so I can shop some more. And then I shop, 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 shop. 139, and I still have at least six other rooms that have this many shoes in them. If not more, I probably spent somewhere in the neighborhood of $20,000 on shoes.
0: How many of you know that her shopping addiction is not necessarily based in the items that she acquires? There's something deeper that's tethered to her addiction. And in the same way, when we hoard, when we gather things to ourselves, we are trying to fill a God-sized void that only God can fill. Amen. So here we are with this nation of idols makers, idol hoarders, and covenant breakers, they break promises, but can't you see, we're like them in so many ways, we break promises to ourselves, break promises to our family members, break promises to our bosses, break promises to our spouses, break promises to our We break promises too. So this is the history, this is the weight, this is the burden that King Josiah is undertaking. Can you feel the weight? What's the response? That these people are cursed by God. Because of their covenant breaking, they're subject to a curse. Why is it so serious? Why does God take idol making and covenant breaking so seriously? Well, for that, you'd have to go to a picture in Exodus 24 of the people confirming their covenant with God. It says this, and Moses wrote down in verse four, all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put in it basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. read those that verse again then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said all that the lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient." and moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said behold the blood of the covenant that the lord has made with you in accordance with all these words how many of you would like pastor larry i made a promise to go ahead and just sprinkle blood all over y'all Pig's blood, shh, 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 fire hose blood. Nah, no, nah. No. Okay, kind of nasty, to y'all. Not really nasty to them. Okay, uh, the, the the blood, the sprinkling of blood is 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 emblematic. It harkens back to uh, this the making of the covenant that when God uh, uh, ratifies his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, and quite literally, making a covenant. It's actually the the, the English transliteration would be to cut a covenant. The cutting of a covenant. Why? Because a covenant is typically bound in blood. And what the spilling of the blood means, and we get this from Genesis 15, is let me become. If I do not fulfill my side of the covenant, let me become like this blood spilt. Let my body be ravaged. Let my body be torn to shreds, just like the animals that you are sacrificing. Let me be put down if I do not fulfill my side of the covenant. This is the binding of the covenant of God and his people. That's why it's this serious. So King Josiah understanding all that, understanding all that history. Now we find ourselves plopped down in his story. Um, It's interesting when you read through 1 and 2 Kings, you see that a lot of the righteous kings, a lot of the good kings, uh, their mothers are actually named. I don't know why that is, Um, but it it, it tends to be when you come across a just or righteous king that his mom is named. And uh, Josiah's mom, her name was Jedidah, meaning beloved. I don't know if that had anything to do with how Josiah turned out, but I know very much that a lot of times in the Old Testament, people are named due to their character. So in Josiah's story, he's actually beginning to complete a renovation of the house of the Lord. And one thing about housing renovations, and you might know a little bit about this century in Philly, which is like one of the major homes of house flipping, right? Houses are getting flipped. You probably live a block or two blocks away from a house that's being flipped. And you can do flips one of two ways. You can do a housing renovation where you can buy cheap materials, okay, and you can paste those cheap materials on top of everything that's existing. And what happens in those particular cases is that the house is going to look very pretty. It's going to look very beautiful, but after the person might buy the house, what happens is is that the signs of what was going on behind the walls or under the floor begin to show themselves. But the right way to do a flip, the correct way to do a renovation is to gut the house of everything that might be problematic so that you can see and expose anything that might be structurally compromised. So this is what uh, is happening in part with Josiah is that he's doing a renovation, and the the amazing thing about the renovation is, is that everything is going according to plan. Money is being passed from worker to worker, and everything is accounted for, that there's no misappropriation of funds, that people have been faithful in everything that they've been doing, and it's in this that a book of the law, that the covenant book of the law is found. That while they were doing what they were supposed to be doing in a faithful and in a committed way, that even though they had suffered decline and idolatry, that because they had started to begin to do some of the right things, that God shows up in presenting this book. Verse 10, it says, then Shaphan, 2 Kings 22, the secretary told the king, Okiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan and sh- and read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Tearing of his clothes shows his penitence. It reveals his desire for the well-being of his people. Why? Well, there must have been something in this book that was very harrowing, that was uh, that, that, that that told him that something was about to go wrong. It, it couldn't have been Deuteronomy 28. Many scholars believe the book that they found was a portion of Deuteronomy. It couldn't have been uh, Deuteronomy 28, 13. It says, and the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. I don't know anybody who would tear their clothes and weep about being told that they're the head and not the tail, go up and not down. Maybe it was Jeremiah 28:58. If you are careful not to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt, which you were afraid. And they shall cling to you every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of the law the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, your God. Now that, my friends, may be something that I might tear my clothes and weep over. Jer- uh, Josiah had this understanding. Now I believe that the fate of the king directly impacted the fate of the nation. And this is the resolution in the, in the, of the central conflict that he's facing. That if I do something, that if I change how things uh, are go about, if I'm going to use my influence for the greater good, I can do something about this situation. It required the renewal of his heart. What do you do when you're facing a spiritual crisis? Well, call Pastor Larry. Josiah sends a band of his servants to inquire of the prophetess Huldah concerning these scrolls that have been found and what might be the fate of the nation. She has these words from the Lord to Josiah, but to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord. The God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard because your heart was penitent. Other versions say tender. And you humbled yourself before the Lord. When you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. When is the last time that you tore your clothes? And wept before the Lord for your city, for your neighborhood, for your family, for your children, for your spouse. When's the last time that, in the face of crisis and conflict, under the burden of all that's happening to you, that you tore your clothes, that you unbore yourself before the Lord, and you said, Lord, here's all that I am, no reservations. Not holding anything back. Do with me what you will. And because the king has first exemplified this, because the king has first done this, he's in prime position for the king to effectively direct the spiritual community away from covenant breaking and towards covenant keeping. Verse 1 of chapter 23 says, Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him, and the king went up to the house of the Lord. And with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written. In this book. And all the people join the covenant. What does King Josiah do here? He's, he's leveling the playing field. All the elders, all the priests, all the prophets, all the men, all the women, all the children. Everyone is in the presence of the community to hear the reading of the covenant book of the law. There is no one who is without excuse. Everyone is present small and great. He levels the playing field says, I'm bound to this covenant as much as you are bound to this covenant. So goes the fate of the king. So goes the nation. Josiah understands that his personal fidelity to the covenant with God has implications about his dominion. He's committed to maintaining the covenant so bad. This, this, This guy is so committed. This is what it says about him in Passover. In, 20, in verse 21, uh, later in chapter 20, verse 21 says, And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. For, and then verse 22 says, For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel, or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept. To the Lord in Jerusalem. It says that this guy was so committed, had, had renewed and allowed God to reshape and renew his heart in such a way that he carried Passover and carried uh, uh, righteousness, righteousness in such a way that not even his fathers, not even King David, had done. But in this 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Will you be a covenant keeper? Will you exert your influence within your sphere, within your home, at your workplace? Will you do all that you can? So goes the father, so goes the family. So goes the mother, so goes the family. So goes the worker, so goes the job. We take ownership of that. He moves them from being covenant-breaking to covenant-keeping. Then he moved them to being idol-breaking. King Josiah's renewed and renovated heart. His allegiance is to Yahweh and him only. So which idols does he break? All of them. Not one is left. That everything is destroyed. Everything that was enthroned the place of God was destroyed, namely the high places and the Asherah poles. Asherah was a Canaanite goddess of fertility and the pole that symbolized her. See, it was the presence of the Asherah poles that represented Israel's lust and envy of neighboring peoples. What did they envy? Their fertile lands, their sexual promiscuity. They, they envied their, uh, 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 their sexual fluidity, their materialism, their politics and power. And I ask you this today, what Asherah poles are in your life? That, uh, what things have been erect, uh, erected in your life, okay? Uh, idols that you worship, that you give attention to above God, where you are envious of other people having those things. Is it a car? Is it a house? Is it a job? Is it a success? Is it a family? What asher poles, what high places have you put up in your life? Does these things steal away your desire to do and to be right for God? Not only what idols did he break, where did he break them? And who who else was associated with this thing? You see, while previous reformers had done away with Asherah in high places in Judah... King Josiah goes beyond that. He says, not only am I taking the idols, not only am I taking them down in Judah, I'm also going to march up north to the former northern kingdom who was committed to idolatry. I'm going to the very heart of Samaria, and I'm taking and I'm ripping down the idolatrous high places and Asherah there. And the challenge there is this, is that there are devastated places in your life. Devastating experiences that you've had in your life, and yet there are still idols in your life that have power in those devastated places. You had dreams and suffered something devastating, yet you give power to the regret of not accomplishing that dream. How did he break the idols? It says he made them like dust. Meaning making, making them like nothing. Jo- Josiah defiled. He, he desecrated the idols. He ground them into powder. Then he scattered them to graves. How will you break the idols that are in your life? Such that there is no remnants, no presence of their power in your life. To what lengths will you go to to destroy your idols? Well, this is the thing that even if you aren't confident about your ability to be a covenant keeper or an idol breaker, what that would mean is normally you are still subject to God's curse. thank god that there is a curse breaker that king jesus is the better josiah see i pointed out to you multiple times now in this narrative how the fate of the king determines the fate of the nation uh that josiah's reign and reform takes its place among the others as Finally pointing it, it says that, guess what, no matter what reforms you might accomplish as a human, no reform that you can do is long-lasting. No reform that you can do is forever. That Josiah may have saved his generation but did not save his nation. See, our engagement with this great king is not a setup for disappointment, but it sets up the entrance of an even greater king. The goal of, the, of this whole book of 2 Kings is to show us that judgment is deserved, that judgment is imminent. But guess what? That also sets up the fact that so is salvation through Jesus. Amen. Amen. That Jesus is the King exemplar. That is Jesus who is able to save us and to satisfy us, and only He can do it totally. That Josiah's reign is just like the temporary sacrifices, that everything in the Old Testament symbolically is temporary, but Jesus shows up in our New Testament scriptures, and he does things that set and change things for all eternity. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, "Curses is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Well, you, you might ask me, well, guess what? Jesus died. Okay, I get that. But how is that different? How is that any better than a king helping his whole nation to reform what they do, who they are? Well, the, uh, Hebrews gives us the answer. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, yes, yes. waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he perfected, not just for a time, but but by by a single offering he has perfected what for all time those who are being sanctified. Anything in this world that you set your affections on will never fully satisfy you. They may be good. They may be virtuous. They may be grandiose, but they can't satisfy you. They are created. When we have set our affections and the allegiance of our desires upon Christ, the self-existent one and the uncreated one, we're then able to find the fulfillment of our identity, our dignity, and our purpose in him. Who has the allegiance of your essence? Have you given it to Christ? Because if the allegiance of your heart has been set upon something that is created, you have limited the possibility of who you can become. That possibility is not limited by life in Christ, but possibility Both purse open the doors. It's through him that we find the affection of our true worship and our true affection to truly be satisfied. God bless you all.